Hi folks, welcome again to another episode of Pro Football in the 1970s. I'm your host, Joe Zagorski. Now, thanks to the Sports History Network, a signed copy of my new book, The 2003-Yard Odyssey, The Juice, The Electric Company, and an Epic Run for a Record, will be given away to one lucky fan. It's all about the 1973 Buffalo Bills. Please check out the Sports History Network online for details on how you can win a free copy of my new book on the 1973 Buffalo Bill. Thanks a lot for listening in to today's episode, folks. Look forward to chatting with you again soon in the future. Take care. you talk about some of the greatest players in the game of the NFL football, the number 12 comes to mind because there are so many to choose from. Join us tonight as Dana Auguster of the Historically Speaking Podcast joins us coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. This is your host, Darren Hayes, and we're podcasting from the Pigpen in Western Pennsylvania to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So with Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff supplying us with the tunes, let's go no huddle through today's football history headlines. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We're so grateful to be joined today in our visit of our Football by Numbers series on number 12 today, and we have a special guest, Dana Auguster of the Historically Speaking podcast, and he's a frequent social media post on all things sports history. I mean, if you haven't uh, heard or seen what this gentleman has to offer, you're missing something, and hopefully after tonight, you're going to listen to his podcast, check him out on the social media. I'm going to bring him in right now. Dana Auguster, welcome to the Pigpen. Man, thank you for having me, man. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, man. I'm, you know, I've been hearing a whole lot about the pig pen, and I'm glad to be a guest on tonight. And I'm looking forward to getting down with you tonight with some number 12s. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy, we have some great ones. But before we get into those number 12s, why don't, we, uh, why don't you explain a little bit to the listeners what Historically Speaking is all about and what Dana Auguster is all about with his uh, sports knowledge and Well, let sharing. me tell you, um, the Historically Speaking Sports podcast is something that, that had been in the works for a while. And it started off with just me just posting little stuff on Twitter on a daily basis. Um, one thing I like to do is um, my my. I guess you can call expertise, I guess, um, is not only football history, but sports history in general. And my podcast talks about sports history in general, football, basketball, baseball. I touch a little bit of hockey, touch a little bit of Olympics, touch a little bit on a lot of different you know, th- different things that that would interest me, and I have like a little daily thing that I put together every day. Like this happened, like today in sports history, and that started about a year ago, and which was my answer to keep it busy during the pandemic, and it just eventually grew into something. And I have been trying to do or think about doing a podcast for a number of years, and I just never really got around to it. But thanks to some. Um, some of my friends and some buddies here on the Sports History Network, they kind of convinced me, say, man, hey, man, why don't you just go ahead and do it? Try it. See how you like it. And then that's where that's where it kind of took off from. Um, a little background info on me. I used to be a sports writer um, for a little for a daily newspaper back in my home state of Louisiana. 
Uh, did that for a number of years. We also did high school football on the radio for also a number of years doing that. And um, I do have a, you know some, some, a little bit of a background in radio. Um, and I kind of um, was like, I need to get back into this somehow, some way. And the two kind of just came together. Podcast, radio experience, sports history. Hey, here it is. That's where this is where I need to be right here. And um, but and, it definitely and, shows because of professionalism that your podcast. I mean, you have a couple episodes out right now. I've listened to them both, and I'm really excited about it. I'm a big fan of it because the you hey, first of all you get the people going. You have those the music going in the beginning. It's just a, I mean it's a catchy tune. It gets you in a vibe. Then you come on and you have these great segments that you're consistent on, and you tell the people what you know. Hey, this is what we're going to do. Here's the main event, and bam, you hit them right off the bat. And uh, then you go into your other segments. It's it's, it's a beautiful work of art and the listeners as soon as you get done with this podcast you got to go check out that historically uh, speaking podcast on the sports history network but uh, yeah you're up, man right before we came on it just my latest episode dropped like maybe 30 minutes before i came on so i've been working on that for a good part of the weekend and um i got just i got i just do something i put something together and um i just got another one just cranked out right before i got on so uh hey there awesome. we go so you got something to do right after you got off with, get off with me so <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's great that is awesome well we have you coming on today because we want to talk about the number that I think a lot of people have been looking forward to is our series of Football by Numbers, the number 12. And probably some of the, the biggest faces throughout football history uh, were the number 12. It's a really big number, especially in this day and age. We have some real superstars that uh, have worn this. And uh, you had a few things that you wanted to talk about before we started getting into these numbers. So I'm going to leave it over to you here. Well, look, number 12 is is the most revered, in my opinion, the most revered number in football. Every other sport has a number that is just up there that's above everyone else. And basketball is 23 for Michael Jordan, obviously. Right. Basketball, I mean, baseball is uh, 42 for Jackie Robinson. Um, and hockey is 99. Um, but as far as football is concerned, there's a couple that could make a serious run at number 12, but in my opinion, the number 12 is just synonymous with greatness, and it's the quarterback position, the most important position in football. And so you have that number that just, just, just is, is in reverence uh, for every football fan. I mean, if you think of really great teams, the best player on the team throughout history, nine times more more often than not is number 12. Um, but I wonder what I want to start off with today is since it's February and it's like history month, there were two very important black quarterbacks who wore number 12, two of them. Okay. And, and I want to start off with them. And it's a little bit of a personal thing with me for both of them because these two quarterbacks attended Grambling University. I attended Southern University, which is Grambling's arch rival. So I'm, I love talking about these guys, but a part of me is like, why do I have to talk about them? You well, know, you're, you're bringing Southern Grambling. You're bringing Southern rivalry in the mix thing. early here, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I do. I like to, that's one thing about me. I like to oh, start stir, a pot. That's it, stir that about, pot. And one thing about HBCUs is that 
when it comes down to game time and it's on the field, we leave it on the field and we give credit where credit is due. The first one I want to go to is the, of, of the number 12 is Doug Williams. Oh, he's now, a great Doug one. wore number 17 at Washington, but during his years at Tampa Bay, he wore 12, and he was very instrumental in that team reaching the 79 NFC Championship game against the, the, the Los Angeles Rams. He was, I mean, he had a great team around him, you know, with uh, Jerry Eckwood and um, Ricky Bell and Jimmy Giles. He had some weapons around him, and he utilized those weapons. And, of course, he had a very good defense backing him up with uh, Hall of Famer Leroy Selman. But um, Doug Williams was like the first black quarterback that I remember watching as a kid. You know, I grew up watching, I mean, I, my football fandom starts off in the late 70s. You know, because I'm 47 years old and about to be 48. But I remember watching Doug Williams play and he was just phenomenal and I remember him even more in the USFL and then later on with the Redskins. But that's the first number 12 I want to get into is Doug Williams. Huh. The second Great. one is another Grambling graduate and that's James Harris who played for the Buffalo Bills in the late 60s, but made a name for himself with the Rams in the mid-70s, leading the Rams to the NFC Championship game in 74, I want to say. So those two I want, I want to kind of get into right off the bat. Since it's oh, absolutely. Black History Month, and you have two very good quarterbacks. James Harris kind of, you know, one thing about James Harris, his nickname was Shaq, by the way. And Shaq Harris was if you don't know him or don't really know remember the recognize the name, he was basically Cam Newton before Cam Newton. Because he was a big, big quarterback. He was six four, two twenty in the sixties playing wow. quarterback. <laughs> yeah, that's a lineman back then, you know. And he had a rocket for an arm that was unbelievable. And when he went to the Rams, this is a little known story. That when Carol Rosenblum hired Chuck Knox as head coach in 73, Chuck Knox was his second choice. His first choice was actually Eddie Robinson to coach the Rams. Ah. And Eddie seriously thought about it. He really thought about it. But then at the last minute, he changed his mind. He called Carol Rosenblum back and said, like, I can't leave Grambling. And the main reason why Carol Rosenblum wanted Eddie Robinson is to coach James Harris. Ah. That was the main thing, was to coach James Harris. And, and he coached him in college, too, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I he coached him in college. He coached him in college. It, Grant, I mean, Eddie Robinson coached Grant pretty much since the beginning, all the way until the mid-90s. Oh, yeah, great coach. Yeah, it's plenty of history there with Eddie Robinson. Wow, I didn't realize that that uh, he was uh, was the first choice to be the Rams head coach. That's that's interesting, and he turned it down to stay at Grambling. But uh, he was there for yeah. Um, this is just a little stats on James Harris had four to five touchdown passes. He played for the Bills. He played for the Rams. He also played a little while for my team, the Chargers, and uh, led them to the nineteen seventy led the Rams to the seventy four NFC Championship game. Yeah. Nice, yeah, good quarterback. Some great stats here. If sixty-nine to seventy-nine, he was in the NFL. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. played on some some good teams, you know, too. So that's uh, definitely a good one to bring up. Definitely under consideration with our mm-hmm. 
our search. We're in, tonight, we, we decided, I forgot to tell our listeners, we decided we're going to try to find yeah. the top 12, number 12s in this uh, discussion tonight. So we're going to go, go hard at us. We're going to give you plenty of examples of some great number 12s to think about. And James Harris and Doug Williams are two good ones to have under consideration because they definitely are uh, worthy of uh, the consideration. So where do you exactly. want to go from? Um, from here, I wanted to let's, um, I got some other notable 12s that okay. didn't quite make the list, didn't make my list of 12 12s. So I'm going to go through it real quick. Um, when you talk about Charger quarterbacks, so since I'm a Charger fan, let me start off with my team, the Chargers. And, and when you talk about Charger quarterbacks, just so the listeners know, I, got, I, I can see uh, uh, Dana right now. You, you can only hear him, but Dana's wearing a bright blue uh, hat with a big lightning bolt on it. Definitely uh, <laughs> showing his fandom for the Chargers. <laughs> so I'm, please continue. Um, when you think about the Chargers, you think of. At quarterback, you, you, go, you can go back to John Hadle. Maybe you can you can also go back in the 60s and talk about Tobin Rowe. You could talk about, of course, Dan Fouts and Phillip Rivers. But the only quarterback to lead the Chargers to a Super Bowl war number 12, and that's Stan Humphreys. Oh. Another Louisiana oh, guy. Stan Humphreys he went to broke love. my heart because I'm a Steelers fan. I'm not, <laughs> no, I'm not apologetic about it. Oh, and wow. he really broke my heart. There was a 94-95 in that AFC Championship game in Pittsburgh where you know San Diego wasn't even supposed to be in consideration of uh, thinking about winning that game. And they came into Pittsburgh and just uh, dropped a big old bomb on uh, us Steelers fans. A real... The pit of our stomach was aching after that one. So Stan Humphreys definitely did some damage that day. <laughs> I mean, if you really look back at that team in 94, we shouldn't have even been in the championship game because we because the Chargers fell behind 20-3 to the week before at home against Miami. And Stan Humphreys brought them back to a late touchdown pass to Mark Say in the corner of the end zone to beat Miami. Um in the divisional round, but Stan Humphreys is a he has a big, big spot in a lot of Charger fans' hearts, including mine. And plus, he's a Louisiana kid, so that's that's another <laughs> that's another thing right there. A little home cooking. Okay, another guy. Yeah, oh, you got to have the home <laughs> cooking, especially if you're from Louisiana. You got to have home cooking. Um, another guy is Chris Chandler. Now, I live in Atlanta, and he's still in a little bit of reverence here in Atlanta. Actually, the next two guys that are part of my honorable mention list are former Atlanta Falcon players, and that's Chris Chandler and Chris Miller. Chris Chandler led the Falcons to the Super Bowl against Denver, which was Super Bowl thirty-three, and um, Chris Miller was the quarterback of the 91 Falcons, which I call the too legit to quit Falcons. He was the quarterback then, and uh, with Jerry Glanville as the coach, and Andre Ryzen and Deion Sanders part of that team. You know, that's another notable number 12. Right. Um, also doing my research, I came across uh, Vinny Testaverde. Oh, yeah. Uh, he mainly wore 16 through most of his career, but he had a couple of episodes with Cleveland and Baltimore where he wore number 12. And he was the Ravens' original starting quarterback when they first started in Baltimore. I think it was the 1990, the 1916, mm-hmm. 96. Yes, I, I think you're say. correct. Um, I remember, um, and he really took off, you know, you know, took off that franchise. And Vinny Sessavari is one of those quarterbacks where he's 
a lot better than what made history made kind of kind of want to portray. You know, because he played for a long time and he had decent numbers and decent performances, but it hasn't. But it wasn't always consistent with him. Well, you you know my biggest measuring stick that I always like to look, especially with the modern quarterbacks, so I'd say Testaverde is more of a modern quarterback, I like to look at that touchdown to interception ratio. because That sort of a that sort of tells right, how they cared right. for the ball. And Testaverde is almost one for one. 275 touchdowns, 267 interceptions. Uh, and if, you know, 46,000 yards is nothing to sneeze at. You know, that's a, a great career. But no. uh, yeah, definitely a very good quarterback. Heisman winner. The, with the Miami Hurricanes, uh, I believe Jimmy Johnson was his coach back in when he was with Miami. Uh, Miami had a yeah, it didn't hurt to throw to oh, Michael yeah, Irvin definitely. either. Definitely, they had some talent down there. It was like uh, quarterback and wide receiver U back in the eighties. <laughs> I think that, that college was. They produced some good ones. That's right. And some great defenders right, too. You know. Um, Oh man, University of Miami was loaded with defenders, loaded with them. Um, another quarterback, and I kind of, he's kind of like, in my opinion, I'm a big baseball guy. He's kind of like the Gaylord Perry of these quarterbacks, and that's Gus Farratt. Ah. And because uh, he played for yes, everybody, he, he played for a lot of different people. You know, he played, let's see, Washington, Denver, Detroit, uh, Cincinnati, Minnesota, St. Louis. It, it, it sounds like a. It sounds like the um, the itinerary for for Delta Airlines trip. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, oh boy, you're right. You're right on the money there. But uh, Gus Farad was a Gus Farad was was actually a pretty decent quarterback. Unfortunately, people are going to remember him for getting a concussion while trying to hit butt the the side of the or of a. FedEx Field when it first opened, <laughs> he was celebrating. He ran in for a touchdown and headbutted the uh, That's right. the, the, the the wall there and got a concussion. <laughs> you know, and, and I think it was a Monday night game that happened, and he was like, he realized that behind that padding was was solid concrete, and got us. They gave us the first time to do this, something like that's um, on national TV. That, like, you know? <laughs> yeah, it was. I think it was a Monday night game. He did that on, and I'm like, oh my mm-hmm. god. And he headbutted the wall and he started holding his forehead and stuff. I'm like, oh my goodness, what did he do? (laughs) Those are definitely some great uh, quarterbacks to bring up. Well, uh, you know, we got a a couple more. Uh, Lynn Dickey, go through them real quick. Lynn Dickey, uh, he was was like one of the first quarterbacks I remember as a kid growing up because I – Collected football cards for like about five minutes. And uh, he was one of the cards I had was Lynn Dickey. Um, Charlie Johnson was another one. Uh, he was another okay quarterback from back in the day. Played for the, the Cardinals, the uh, Oilers, and the Broncos in the 60s and 70s. You have a you have a punter on here, punter slash kicker, Don Concroft, for the Browns. Who oh, played yes, he did. Ever. You know, and and near and dear to my wife's heart, my wife is a big Saints fan, and making the list is a, one of the few non quarterbacks on the team on this list, and that's uh, Marcus Colston. My wife is a big Marcus Colston fan. What well, was was a big Marcus Colston fan when he played, and um, he was a, he was probably the most famous number twelve of the Saints. And my wife's a oh. huge Saints fan. Well, that so. those are definitely some great. Uh, names that we're going to have to probably do some thinking about here uh, as we go to our number our 12 top 12 of the number 12 in this journey tonight now 
I guess mm-hmm. maybe a, a great place for stepping off. I think that we're probably. Uh, I think we can probably come into some agreement. We have eight. Uh, Pro Football Hall of Famers that the Pro Football Hall of Fame has declared wore the number 12 during their careers. And there's some uh, really big names on here. And I think they, what we've been normally doing is uh, talking about them a little bit. And normally they're getting almost that automatic bid into our our top uh, 12 for tonight. And I don't think there's going to be any argument about these guys. Uh, I mean, we have just alphabetical order. We have Bradshaw Mm -hmm. and Greasy and Arnie Erber, which maybe not a lot of people remember, but he was an early Packers quarterback under Curly Lambeau. Uh, Jim Kelly, uh, Link Lyman, who we talked about uh, earlier in our segments because he wore some lower numbers, I think number one or number two uh, during a lot of his career. Uh, then we got Broadway mm-hmm. Joe Namath, uh, another great quarterback. Kenny Stabler of Oakland Raiders fame, and Roger Staubach of the Dallas Cowboys. Those are our eight Hall of Famers that uh, mm-hmm. I don't know that I could have an argument to take any of those those fellas off of the top 12, number 12s. How about you? No, you, no, no, you don't. Um, the, the only thing is that, you know, Lyman, I don't really know that much about because he was, he was a lineman, okay? Or defensive lineman. I think well, he was. He was, a, he was a two-way player. He was because I know he, he was, was a two-way tackle. I mean, okay. this, this guy early 1920s. Yeah. Let me tell you a little bit about Link Lyman. His real name was William Roy and Lyman. Link was his uh, name. I think that's just a, a badass mm-hmm. football name, you know, Link Lyman. It just kind of scares me. That I, is. I don't that want really, really want to go up Link, against yeah, a guy yeah. named Link. You know, you don't know what you're coming up to. Sounds like a part of a chain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but right. he played in the early 20s in the mm-hmm. NFL. So, remember the 1920s, six foot two and weighed 233 back in the 1920s. That's a large man for that era. Uh, he was a member of three straight NFL that championship is, really teams. Is a large guy. Three straight championships, the 1922 and 1923 Canton Bulldogs and then the 1924 Cleveland Bulldogs team. Uh, he joined the Chicago Bears on a barnstorming tour that featured Red Grange and played with them for a few years. Uh, he was with the Bears the balance of his career and even won another NFL championship with them in 1933. And he sort of created the shifting defense alignment because he didn't stay in one position. He was so flexible, such a great athlete. He moved up and down the line. Uh, it was almost uh, somewhat linebacker-ish because he was kind of fluid in his motion, very athletic. Uh and through his whole career, six, 16 okay, years okay. in the NFL, only one losing season in 16 years on multiple teams in multiple cities. Um, he's a great, great football player. I mean, that's that's a little bit of what I know about Link Lyman. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you could play up that long period of time at that tackle, you know, and both playing both ways, uh, you're doing something. I mean, plus, I mean, you look at the size and athleticism, and you plus you part the shift into the uh, along the like defensive lineman going, you know, going from the A gap to the B gap or whatever. I think he might have been the one to probably invent that. You know, um, because that's something that you normally didn't see. You saw that, on, and you look at old films. You see the defense. You see the offense. You know, going to where I guess was called the Notre Dame shift. But you didn't see defensive play. Once they did, you stood there. And I think Lyman probably brought that into brought it into the fore when you talk about um, 
defensive players. Right, yeah. I mean, today's NFL, you might see somebody go from like a zero technique to a three technique on the line, but you usually don't see them going out to the fives and outside of that. Right. It sounds like Link Lyman was one of those kind of ball players that could do that. So that's a tremendous ball player. Wow, wow, that's impressive. Well, that's as long impressive. as we're staying old school, let's 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 talk a little bit about, about Arnie Erber. I don't know if you know much about Arnie, but he was another early NFL player. Yeah, he was a he was a pack. He was a great Packers quarterback from the yeah nineteen thirty through nineteen forty with know, the Packers. To, they spent a couple years with the Giants after that. Yeah, you know he was. Um, yeah, and um, was his favorite receiver. Um, Oh God! What's his Don, name? Don Hudson, um, number fourteen. Yeah. Don Hudson. Don yeah. Hudson. I watched that in Alabama. I mean, Don Hudson. You know, he's, he was. I mean, he was probably the Jerry Rice of the pre pre nineteen fifties. Absolutely. You know, because he had every record, every receiving record, and his touchdown receiving record wasn't broken until Steve Largent until yeah, 89. that's something. So he was doing something back in the day, but who? But but Herbert was the one to get him the ball. Um, he was the first real great Packers quarterback. Definitely. I mean, he threw a touchdown in his very first pro game as a 20-year-old, you know, in 1930. That's that's just amazing. That's, I mean, think about the, what 1930 was. That was, you know, the Great Depression era is happening. And you have a 20-year-old kid coming out of college and uh, yeah. throwing a touchdown in, in an era where you don't really pass that much on a Packers team that like to run the ball. You know, so it's uh, great – you know, I mean, when you talk about the Packers pre-Far, all you think about is running backs. Or you know, going from you know, going from Jim Taylor and um, Paul Horning and um, mm-hmm. Horning to you know to the seventies with John Brockington and those guys. Most of my football expertise is pretty much from the, from the fifties onward to now. You know, and then and I'm starting to learn a lot more about the about the early days, the back, the the, the way old school, rusty, dusty days. Of the NFL, <laughs> rusty, I like dusty. I like that. I like that. Yeah, you're gonna you'll you'll find with a lot of the partners we have here on Sports History Network. I mean, uh, Mr. Chapman loves to get into that. He he loves that era, the 1920s. Uh, you know, that's of course that's maybe the only time the Lions were really a, a superior team. So that's what he really likes it. But you know, Joe. Joe Zagorski and Joe Zimba, they get into that, you know, those great old days. I, I mean, I love them too. There's, there's just some great football back then and some real characters that played the game back then. So th- those are sort of our old time uh, gentlemen that are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame that wore the number 12. Uh, I guess next week probably want to go to like the 1970s era with some uh, Hall of Famers there. And we've got uh, three or four really good ones that were on there, probably the top four quarterbacks in the NFL of the 70s. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm sorry, five of them. Um, you know, we, I guess maybe place to start is the, the Super Bowl MVP of Super Bowl number three, uh, Joe Willie Namath. He's uh, down from your neck of the woods, played at Alabama. Broadway Joe. Yep, from Alabama. Well, he, from yeah, he, well, he actually, actually, yeah, uh, actually he's from my neck of the woods growing up, but he's played, played ball for Bear Bryant. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, Joe Namath, I think, was the, of all the players, of all the 12s that are in the Hall of Fame, Joe Namath might, may not have been the best quarterback of the bunch, but I would like to say that Joe was probably the most important. 
in that he, of course, won Super Bowl three and gave the AFL legitimacy. But also what he did was he brought to position something that it hadn't had before, oh, yeah. and that's swagger. <laughs> And he had the mustache, he had the, you know, he had the fur coat, he had the nightclub in, in New York City, he had the TV show. He, I mean, this guy had more swagger than you could shake a stick at. And he was probably the most important of all the quarterbacks um, on this list as far as, like, bringing something to the table that it hadn't had before. Now, you think about the 60s and the quarterbacks there, and the great quarterbacks, you had Unitas and Starr and... Um, and all the like, Dawson, Hadel, those guys were very good quarterbacks. But as far as, but as, far as um, swagger, Joe Namath had just more swagger than any of them put together. Now, the only other person that probably would have had more, just as much swagger, but it's kind of suppressed with him being in the NFL was Sonny Jurgensen. But Namath had more had swagger on top of swagger, you know, and plus he could kind of, he could back it up. It's, it's just amazing that if he – can you imagine what it would have been like if he had better supporting cast around him offensively and two no, good knees? Definitely. I mean, he, but even so, I mean, he played he played on a, a I mean, pretty good 69 Jets team that won that Super Bowl. But he was five-time Pro Bowler and, uh, you know – for the Jets, and he played a little bit for the Rams. But of course, his better years were probably with the Jets. That's what he's most remembered for. Yeah. Uh, but they were. I mean, I don't think people appreciate how heavily of an underdog the Jets were against the Baltimore Colts in that Super Bowl three game. Uh, it was, you know, it probably wasn't even close. It was. Uh, I, I don't even know how to compare it to any other Super Bowl because I think that was probably the biggest betting line difference between the two teams of any Super Bowl that I can think of. I think it was like eleven and a half points or something it was a spread between that and it was it was it was something big. Um, but even them even getting to the Super Bowl was something of a of a surprise because they had to win two playoff games to get there, which was unusual. And they had to be there to play the Chiefs, which was one year away from winning theirs. And then they played the Raiders, and there was a rematch from the most infamous game in AFL history, the Heidi game. Um, And that game was at Shea Stadium, and the Raiders, I think, were favored to win that one. Um, because they were the defending Super Bowl champions and they had crushed Kansas City earlier that year and um, it was almost a foregone conclusion that somehow, you know, Nameless was going to choke up but the weather kind of like was in their favor at Shea Stadium with the, 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 the swirling winds and the cold weather kind of affected the Raiders more than anything and it was like the errant lateral pass to Charlie Smith that the Jets recovered to seal it. You know, but um, the Jets were just a very, very balanced team. And that team was more along the lines of don't mess it up. Just play the game, play within yourself. And what probably what Reed Eubank was telling them the whole time, you know, just don't mess this up. Don't try to do more than what you're capable of. And that's exactly how they did it um, to get to, you know, get to, to play Baltimore and ended up beating the um Beating the Colts in Super Bowl three—that was probably the most important game in the history of pro football. With the one of the most important players ever, because he brought to the position, you know, the element of being uh, the element of 
confidence and swagger. I, I totally agree with that. Well, I mean, as long as we're on it, we're sort of segueing right into our next quarterback. Maybe we should talk about was was not a Raider at that time, but became a starting quarterback of the Raiders a few years after that, and then especially in the mid nineteen seventies. Ken Stabler. What do you think about Ken on our list? Well, Ken Stable is another Alabama quarterback. Um, right. He, he followed Namath, you know, at, right after at Alabama. And, um, you know, Alabama fans remember him as a, the, the run through the mud against Auburn. 60, I think 1967 Iron Bowl, that was. At, the, at uh, Legion Field. Mm-hmm. Okay. When he had to run through the mud. And um, in one of my dad's favorite quarterbacks, because my dad's actually crazy Raider fan and uh, left-handed quarterback and he's he's one of those guys that if you are behind I mean if you're in a, if you're, you're you're playing if you're playing snake stabler and you're ahead by a touchdown or less you might as well just go ahead and cancel Christmas because because he's gonna find a way to win mm-hmm. you know especially when he was with the Raiders um now what happened I don't know what happened in the, in the time that he went to the Oilers when he wore 12 at the Oilers because he kind of lost, got kind of lost his way there for a minute, but uh, which it was really disappointing because he was going to a really stacked Oilers team when he when he joined them in in 1980. Um, but when he was with the Raiders and he had Belichick and Branch and Van Egan and Clarence Davis, you know I I know all these guys because of all of my dad telling me about them since the time I was little, <laughs> trying to persuade me to be a Raider fan. That's the reason why I'm a Charger fan. Anyway. <laughs> And uh, that's one of the reasons. But anyway, uh, Snake was one of those guys that they, they, they called him Snake for a reason. And the reason was that he was just so crafty. And so, and you look at film of him, of him playing, and you notice that he could stand back in the pocket and just stand there like a statue. And nobody's around him. Okay, he literally had all day to throw it, and his act, his accuracy was uncanny throwing the oh, football. Oh, absolutely! It was just amazing. I mean, he had his Super Bowl game against the Minnesota Super Bowl eleven. I mean, doesn't look like that great of stats in today's NFL, but he was you know twelve of nineteen, which was pretty good for a Raiders team that liked to run the ball a little bit, and had one hundred and eighty yards against the Purple People Eaters defense. And that was just a, a tremendous outing as the, the Raiders uh, won that game 32-14 to over the Vikings in that Super Bowl. Uh, he's had 194 touchdown passes in his career, a 661 winning percentage. I mean, definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Definitely, I think, on our list of 12 for today uh, we're talking about. Now, well, one thing about Stabler that, that you had brought up, of you being a Steelers fan, is that the immaculate reception would never would have happened. If it never happened, the most impressive and the greatest play of that game would have been Stabler's, I think he ran like 30-some yards through the Steelers' defense to, 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 to score the, 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 the touchdown to give the Raiders the lead. He had like this long run down the sidelines for like about 30-some yards and nobody could catch him and he scored right, right with like about a minute or so left you're, to you're set right. up there everything for real, the Immaculate Reception. That was the only touchdown in the game that, up that to that like, point uh, too, I believe. I think it was all field goals before that. Yeah, I think it was. It was a, it was a, it was a cold, it was a cold, wet day at, uh, at Three Rivers, and and 
Stabler broke away, and, and uh, once again, in replacement of LaMonica, who seemed like he got, always got hurt, and um, and took the ball down the sidelines and scored. And this was like when he was like like his second or third year yeah, in the league. definitely was. He was definitely the well. snake Stabler on that list. Now, why don't we transition? Let's go to our Dallas Cowboys quarterback. Came from Navy, Roger Staubach, you know. All-American quarterback, was a Heisman winner at Navy. Uh, great quarterback with the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Absolutely. You're talking about Captain America. Um, <laughs> Roger the Dodger. Um, he had more last-second <laughs> rescues than Errol Flynn. Uh, he would come back there with his scrambling ability. <laughs> he would come out of there and... Uh, and the Cowboys were behind, and Dallas and, and, and Roger had the ball. You might as well just call it a day. It's like he's going to figure out a way to get the Cowboys down if he's going to score that last touchdown. He did it all over and over and over and over again. Um, one of the games that I remember watching um, was, I think it was, let's see, his very last regular season game. I remember watching that as a kid. And when he played Washington, and he brought them back uh, like two or three times. John Riggins was just running all over the all over the Cowboys, and he brought them down the field, and he threw a last touch, the last second touchdown pass to Drew Hill in the corner of the end zone at Texas Stadium, and with like like nine seconds to left, nine seconds to go, that was his last regular season game, and he brought them back down the field, and he scored. And if, and if there was anybody that was Tom Brady in the seventies. Minus the Super Bowl championships, it was Roger Starbuck because he was just that kind of guy that if you gave him a chance, he was going to figure out a way to get it done. You, and you know what more amazing, times amazing about that? It and it's interesting you say, you know, have a little bit of comparison with Tom Brady. You know, Staubach, after he won the Heisman, he served a four-year commitment to the Navy before he could go in the NFL. So he was a rookie at age 27 in the NFL. And so losing those those first four sort of learning seasons uh, as a young NFL quarterback uh, probably knocked some of the statistics down, but he still had an awesome career career. 153 touchdowns, you know, Super Bowl winner and MVP of Super Bowl six. Uh, just had some great battles, you know, uh, with those Raiders teams mm-hmm. and the Steelers teams of the 70s. Uh, probably if it wasn't for the Steelers, he'd have a couple more Super Bowl victories in there, too, because they, they were definitely uh, Super Bowl ten and Super Bowl mm-hmm. thirteen with the, the Steelers and the Cowboys, both four-point games in Straubach at it, the Cowboys didn't lose because of Staubach. You know, he was, he was just a tremendous player. And, he, and you know, growing up a Steelers fan, you know, uh, not, I remember the '70s pretty avidly. That's when I started watching football. But Roger Staubach and Ken Stabler were two of those quarterbacks that were just sort of the, the sort of the, the pain in the butts for the Steelers. You know, the, and Stabler, you could. You could you could like you know dislike the Raiders because they just had sort of that the aura about them you know and and Stabler was sort of that you know Buccaneer swashbuckler guy <laughs> of that Raiders team that you know were just the bad guys of the NFL and they they sort of liked that moniker but Roger Staubach like you said Captain America you just couldn't dislike the guy because he was just a solid football player and he was a pretty nice guy from everything I've seen you know good good Christian. Uh, very moral, dedicated to the Navy for four years instead of going and making money in the NFL and mm-hmm. after winning a Heisman. Just, I mean, you, there's nothing to 
but all respect for Roger Staubach, and I could just never dislike the man, but boy, I hated when the Steelers had to play against him, though. He was a great quarterback. Well, let me tell you, but I mean, he had to, he had to, he had to hit to the Navy, okay, and not only that, he had to come back into the NFL and basically outgun basically uh, Craig Morton for the starting job because when he because Morton had led the Cowboys to the to Super Bowl five. You know, and he had to sit behind Morton and maybe a little while behind um, when he came out of the Navy. I think Don Meredith might have still been playing. So he had to sit behind two, two very decent quarterbacks to get his shot. And he finally got his shot in doing the 71 season when Landry, for some reason, decided to play both of them at the same time, which was a disaster. And he finally set it on Roger and the rest is history. And everybody remembers his first, his very first miracle, bringing the Cowboys back. I think they were down by what seventeen points for two minutes to go against the Forty ers one time at Candlestick in the playoffs, and he brought them back and scored through like through quick two uh-huh. quick touchdown passes and within the span of like thirty seconds to win. You know, to bring them to descend them to the to NFC Championship game, in I think in seventy two, we ended up losing to Washington that year. But you know, but. It, that was through like, the original Hail Mary pass. His career from that point pass is called the Hail Mary against Minnesota in an NFC Championship game. Yeah, that's right. Too, to, to Vikings, that yeah. so, great, great quarterback. Now, now, we have two other. I mean, those are some great quarterbacks we that's talk right. about from the 70s. You know, when you're talking about, you know, Namath had some part of his better part of his career in the 70s. Uh, you know, Stabler and Roger Staubach. Uh, but. Probably the the two biggest number twelve quarterbacks in the seventies uh, we haven't even got to yet, and I think the first one we got to talk about because he led an undefeated team uh, to a Super Bowl win, even though he got a little bit of help from Earl Morrill. But Bob Greasy of the Miami Dolphins fame. What do you think about Bob? Bob Greasy is the basically the prototypical system quarterback. You get you ask him. To, you would ask him to do whatever you you need him to do in an offense, and he could do it. His passing his passing statistic isn't all that great because he didn't he didn't throw the ball much. I mean, you have Zonka kicking Morris behind you. Why would you run the ball? I mean, why would you throw it? I mean, and then Greasy has the record right. for fewest pass attempts in a Super Bowl with what seven? He threw like seven passes in a Super Bowl, you know, um, and then. You got and then, no. and then, no. you, then the receivers that he had were not scrubs. They were not. You know, you had Paul Warfield on one side. You had Howard Twilley on the other side. You had Mar Fleming and Pete and Pete Mandage but, as tight ends. You had some weapons. I mean, I mean, you talk about a solid, well, solid offense that I think could win games now with that offense and that that that, um, right. that unbelievable offensive line. You could win games with that right now, with and with Bob Greasy at quarterback. And one thing that people don't really realize with Bob Greasy was that he was a scrambler. He was actually very athletic, you know, running the ball and throwing it at the same time. He was very, very athletic, and you don't really see that because of the system that Shula insisted on running. But when he first so, came out yeah, of the I, I totally agree with that assessment. Like you say, when you have – you know, a big back like Zonka that just, you know, pounded defensive lines to, to death, you know, the thumper. And then you have the speed outside with Mercury Morris, you know, very aptly named. I mean, 
it's it's uh, hard to go away from that running game, especially in the early 1970s when that was, but mm-hmm. all the, that was the fad back then was just you know running that ball, and uh, yeah, Bob Greasy though, what a great quarterback he was. Um, he he had, uh, I mean, even in college, you know, he had mm-hmm. some great wins. He had a, a win over the uh, he played for Purdue, and they had a great win over Notre Dame, and he was 19 of 22 passing in 13 straight completions yeah. at one point against Notre Dame. Uh, who was a pretty good team that year? A consensus All-American selection in '65 and '66, and uh, he was a top pick uh, by the Dolphins in the 1967 AFL draft. So mm-hmm. he did play in the AFL for a little bit, and uh, NFL Player of the Year in 1971, right. along with that uh, Super Bowl seven and uh, Super Bowl uh, eight victories. Yeah. So yeah, very very good quarterback and greasy. Well, now I think it's yeah. time to get to. My favorite quarterback of the seventies, the number twelve of the the original TB twelve, Terry Bradshaw, <laughs> the Pittsburgh Steelers. What do you got on Terry? Uh, another Louisiana guy, uh, Louisiana Tech. He went to um, he his 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 career didn't get off to a promising start, you know. But he, I think Terry Bradshaw probably, in my opinion, has probably the most textbook throwing motion for a quarterback I have ever seen. His, the ball, when he threw deep, you knew it was going deep, and it was pretty to watch. And, I mean, his balls were like, the only other person that I could think of offhand whose spirals were perfect like his was Warren Moon. And his spirals were perfect. His, his throwing motion was perfect, and it was always on the money, you know. And people want to talk about his, you know, his lack of quote-unquote intelligence. But let me tell you, he had more guts and he had more toughness than a lot of quarterbacks that you that, that, that you could really think of. Um, and he was he, he could come come through for you in the clutch, and, and he says all the time, and it's the absolute truth. Every Super Bowl he was in, he threw a fourth-quarter touchdown pass, you know, which – which changed the game, you know, which gave the Steelers the win. You know, you think, I mean, the first Super Bowl I remember watching as a kid was Super Bowl fourteen against the Rams. And that pass that, that the, the first long pass he threw to John Stallworth where he caught the ball right. over Rod Smith and then took it to the house 74 yards later for a touchdown. That was probably as beautiful, as beautiful and as perfect a pass that you could yeah, possibly he, throw. I mean, Terry couldn't hand the ball to him better. I think where Bradshaw struggled a little bit was in the short game because everything, he was almost like, you know, the way Elway was. He wanted to just rifle a ball, you know, it might be a, a five yard out. He's he's firing a bullet to, yeah, he's not going to throw that soft one over to Rocky Blyer out of the backfield. It's, it's coming at you. And you better, he had no touch. He had no touch. Catch with your hands, man, or you're going to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Brad, Bradshaw. I mean, two-time Super Bowl MVP. Uh, just a, a great quarterback. Really saved a franchise from, uh, you know, they were a 1-13 in team when he got there. And uh, Chuck Knoll brought in, uh, you know, Mean Joe Green as his first NFL draft pick the next year, you know, taking Terry Bradshaw. An interesting story not a lot of people know is that at Louisiana Tech, Bradshaw sat the bench before behind a, a celebrity, the, the patriarch of the Duck Dynasty uh Franchise, and I forget forget the gentleman's name now. But uh, he, the the father of that Duck Dynasty uh, t- television show, was actually a starting quarterback at Louisiana Tech, and and Terry admits as much as that he sat behind him. Robertson, um, 
great man, and uh, it's kind of interesting that that came came to be that uh, Bradshaw sat behind him at Louisiana Tech. Phil, Phil Robertson, that's his name, Phil Robertson. <laughs> now, that's something, it's true that you learn something new every day, because I did not know that. I had no idea about that uh, when he was at Phil Roberts, okay. But, um, yeah, La Tech have always had great quarterbacks. I mean, good. I mean, Terry Bradshaw was the one who started. But, you know, watching Louisiana Tech growing up as a kid, they've always had really, really good teams that who love to throw the ball. You know, they have always been a passing program. Um, you know, going, you know, you had Tim Rattay who was there and played for the 49ers for a little while and a few others who I can't think of right off. But, um Louisiana Tech was a, a, you know, people talk about the women's basketball team, but their football team was pretty good as well. Okay, well, definitely I think those are our 70s quarterbacks. All were very good. Now, a little bit more contemporary, uh, more from the the late 80s uh, in the mid-90s, Jim Kelly, uh, another Western Pennsylvania high schooler that became a starting quarterback in the NFL and made it to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. What do you got on Jim Kelly? Uniform, the original great quarterback from the U, um, University of Miami. Um, he, I watched, I remember watching him when he was with the Houston Gamblers of the USFL to show you my age. Um, I remember watching him under Mouse Davis over there at the USFL and, um, you know, putting up ridiculous numbers in the Astrodome. Um, and that's when I really, really started to watch him. And then when he went to the Bills and the K-Gun offense and all of the weapons that he had in the four Super Bowls, you know, that he that was a fun team to watch, you know. And, of course, a lot of that fun came at the, at the expense of my Chargers, but that's another story. But um, they were so much fun to watch. If I could, just <laughs> before we get away from that USFL career, I, I thought this was an amazing stat. Two years with the Gamblers, he threw for 9,842 yards and 83 touchdowns in two seasons. I mean, sit sit there and think about that for a second. You know, it's almost 5,000 yards in two separate years and over 40 touchdowns in each of them. Amazing. Well, that was was pretty much the the birth of the running shoot offense when it came to pro football. Um, The running shoot offense is basically... It, it, it's one of the most it, it's the most fun offense to watch, but it also could be the most difficult to run um, because you have to be on the same page with the receiver, and the receiver and the quarterback have to read the same thing and be on the same page. And not only just one receiver, you're talking about a, you're talking about four wide with no tight end. Okay, that's the run issue essentially. And for you to run that offense, you go put up numbers. That's that's like. You know, to, to, to shift gears to college basketball, they had a coach called, named Paul Westhead, who coached Loyola Marymount, who was coming up with these ridiculous scores, scoring 100. They, they scored one time, they scored 140 points at LSU in college basketball. And basically, what it was was basically get the ball, go down the shoot, go down the court, and then shoot it. Whoever got it, shoot it. The, Paul Westhead would bench you for not shooting it. So, so. The running shoe was like that, and, and, and Tom and, and um, Jim Kelly was the perfect, perfect quarterback to run that system because he was so brainy and he was so so smart with defense and reading defenses and stuff. And it, it helped to have guys like Don Beebe and and um, and Andre Reed, who was also very smart receivers as well. And that's why the K Gun worked so well was because they, I mean, you had Marv Levy who who who. Who developed this offense of no huddle, 
you know, the offense, the, the quarterback and the, you know, the, the quarterback and the receivers reading the same things. And teams in the early, late 80s, early 90s didn't know how to defense it. They just didn't know how to. And plus, the weather in western in, in, in western New York didn't help matters, especially when especially when it got to December and January. It didn't help playing in Buffalo, but for some way, somehow, Jim Kelly could throw that ball in that cold and that ice. You know, part of that part, of, I guess, it was part of that Western Pennsylvania, uh, you know, heritage. I guess <laughs> <laughs> you get used to it. You do, really do. Uh, but another amazing fact about Kelly: okay, he had eleven seasons with the Bills. Uh, had 17 playoff appearances, including the four Super Bowls, which weren't his best days. But in the in the 17 playoff games, with the, including the Super Bowls, he tossed the ball for 3,863 yards and 21 touchdowns. I mean, that's that's a like a full season plus a game, and to, to throw that much in those big games against the best competition in the AFC and the NFL is uh, that's pretty good statistics, pretty good numbers. For Kelly, yeah, yeah, Jim Kelly was one of the great big game quarterbacks. Of course, it didn't always translate in the Super Bowl, but his best Super Bowl was Super Bowl twenty five in a defense that was pretty much geared to stop the passing, and he still had a big game. And the architect of that defense in Super Bowl twenty five with the Giants was Bill Belichick. So he basically outdueled Bill Belichick, but it wasn't. But it came down to a last second field goal, unfortunately. But you know his. His, you know, the way that, and plus, I forget about that. He had uh, James Lofton playing with right. him too as a veteran, which was one of the best. You know, he was one of the best receivers of the eighties that people forget about. It was James Lofton when he was with the Packers. You know, and he had the easy long stride. You know, he was just a very, very easy target for Jim Kelly. You know, during those early years, you know, the, the two Super Bowl years with the with the Bills, he was just remarkable. And like you said, you know, him and Andre Reid were probably two of the most intelligent wide receivers, you know, probably ever to play the game. Very cerebral uh, wide receivers to have go with a very cerebral quarterback. Great uh, combination there. Right. Okay, so just in the retrospect, we're going to put these eight Hall of Famers into our 12. Terry Bradshaw, Bob Greasy, Arnie Erber, Jim Kelly, Link Lyman, Joe Namath, Ken Stabler, and Roger Staubach. We have all those Hall of Famers to talk about, and I think uh, we're in a total agreement that we're going to have a surefire Hall of Famer in number 12, uh, the new TB12 that everybody's the most, more famous one, and that's Tom Brady of Patriots, the New England Patriots fame, and now the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What do you have on Tom Brady? Well, Tom Brady, I remember watching Tom when I was, when he was at Michigan, um, I remember watching him. Um, he he sat behind, um, it was Drew Henson he sat behind, I believe it was. I, and, I think uh, you're right. You know, and um, he finally got a start in the Orange Bowl. He led him to the Orange Bowl, I should say, against Alabama in 2000, I want to say. Um, and then ended up going to the Patriots. And and when he went to the Patriots and he got his chance against, uh, with uh, when uh, Drew Bledsoe got that, went down, I said, they may have something. They may have something, but I wasn't holding my breath. I wasn't a Patriots fan, you know, obviously. And as, as it's one of those things where you recognize greatness when you see it. And when you saw Tom Brady lead the, the lead the, the Patriots against the Rams in Super Bowl Thirty Six, you were like, okay, he, we may have something here. He may be a really, really good one. You know, he may be really, really tremendous. 
and he really was, to say the least. Um, now, I do have some mixed feelings with Tom Brady because he ended my Chargers seasons a couple of a few times, actually. But, um, you know, it is what it is. Uh, to put it that way, it is what it is. But he's, he, I mean, I get into the discussion all the time whether he's like really the greatest of all time. And before this season, I was like, no, because I don't think he could win it without Belichick. He proved me wrong. He really did prove me wrong. I think he proved everybody wrong on that one. He proved me wrong. <laughs> you know, and uh, I was like, hey, there's no way he can win without Belichick because I figured that it's Belichick. You know, Belichick is the guru. He's, he's the man on top of the mountain with the, with the, with the white robe and everything. Like, he's, the, he's, he's football's Yoda. That, 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 that so, evil hooded uh, genius of the sidelines, <laughs> as us Steeler fans like to refer to him as. <laughs> Right. So, but uh, he like it. Like I said, he ended my Chargers season a number of times, and uh, a couple times I'm like, like the one that, that haunts me the most was when we were twelve and two. We were Marty Schottheimer was our coach, and he came down to San Diego, and he just they put they did a number. He put a number to us. They really did. Oh, I, I know the feeling because uh, you know Tom Brady definitely was a, a thorn in the side of the, the Steelers. Uh, aspirations to go to the Super Bowl more than one occasion. You know, there's a couple uh, AFC championship games that took place in Pittsburgh that uh, Brady and the Patriots just came in and just, uh, you know, crushed the dreams, just like we talked about Sam Humphrey doing a, a little bit ago. Yeah. What a- yeah. I tell you about, it. I mean, but, you know, Tom Brady is, you know, he's the goal. And, 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 and it, it takes a lot for me to say that. It does. It takes a lot for me to say that, yeah, he is the goal. I mean, I mean, how how about that stat now? With him winning this most recent Super Bowl, he has more Super Bowl wins than any franchise in the Super Bowl era. You know, that's just amazing. A quarterback, a player, started and won more Super Bowls than any franchise has won. That's that's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's really ridiculous. It, it really is. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but it is ridiculous. You know, and um, and. And he's won all those Super Bowl and been uh, that great of a player, you know, his whole career. And and he's tied to pretty much one coach for his for the bulk of his career. I'd say like nine tenths of his career with one coach. Yeah, that's uh, that's incredible. Now, remember, I, I told you how I love the statistic of the touchdowns to interceptions, and usually. When most quarterbacks, you say, you know, that's a great career when you have like a, a two to one ratio of touchdowns, and interceptions. Brady, another just ridiculous stat 581 touchdowns, only 191 interceptions. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. That's almost three to one. You know? it's, it, it's, it's almost sickening. You know what I mean? It's almost sickening that, you know, he has that many, intercept, that many touchdowns to interceptions. And oh, he's just. Uh, just under he's 79,204 yards passing in his career. I mean, he's going to hit that 80,000 mark uh, easily if he plays this coming year, which sounds like he's going to. Uh, just a tremendous ball player for all 21 seasons that he's he's been in the NFL. Yeah. I, I, you got to take into consideration what would he have done had he not gotten hurt that one year where he missed the whole year. Yeah, that's true. Very true. Uh he had that one career, that one season, the year after he went seven. Oh wait, wait, was it eighteen and one or nineteen and one? And uh, the first game out against Kansas City, he got tackled him low, shredded his knee, and he's done for the year. You know. Yeah, that's true. 
mean, uh, what would the record book would look like if you would have had another the whole year? You know, because he's not one of those guys that gets hurt. You know, and it's and plus trying to get injury reports out of New England is what you'd be better off trying to get uh, Soviet missile secrets. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you with those one liners today, boy, you're, you're got them going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, just listen to some of the these uh, awards he's got. Fourteen Pro Bowls, three times as an All Pro, the seven Super Bowl championships, three time League MVP. Tom Brady. I mean, uh, I, when you say have the word "goat" up there, I don't know in football. I don't know you can have any other face than Tom Brady's anymore because. Uh, well, at least for quarterback, in my opinion, he's of all the players in my, NFL history. He's, in my opinion, in my humble estimation, he's the fifth greatest all-time player. Period. Yeah. Oh, but that that might be a. Uh, Time for another episode here. We might have to have you on because I'd like to get into that a little bit more. But but today we got to talk about these number twelves because we still have a bunch of them to yeah. uh, to talk about. But I think we can both agree that Tom Brady should be our be in that list of twelve. So that takes up nine of our slots if we have the eight Hall of Famers and Tom Brady. And I think mm-hmm. another one that we could probably agree on uh, played in Green Bay this past year as a number twelve. What do you have to say about Aaron Rodgers? The first time I saw Aaron Rodgers was he played when he was at Cal. I'm a UCLA fan, and and I don't know why I'm part of the teams from Southern California, but I just am. In the same um, color scheme. <laughs> yeah, same color scheme, you know, I am. But I watched him play at UCLA, and it was like every pass he threw was caught. Every single pass he threw was caught, and it was effortless, you know. And he brought that into the NFL. Now, when I saw him that night, which was always talked about how he was sat in the draft room waiting to get drafted, I just kept saying to myself, whoever picked this guy up, he's going to blow the league up. I'm telling you, he's going to blow the league up. Then when he heard him going to the Packers, I'm like, I don't know. They're going to trade him because Brett Favre's still there. So he's going he, he's going to sit behind Brett Favre. Really, you you think that's going to happen? And, and a lot of my friends were saying, I don't know if he's that good. You know, he kind of looks shaky and everything. Like, bro, I'm telling you, I've seen this. I've seen this guy play in college. He is the truth. He is the real deal. And he was. He came out and he just set it on fire, like I said he would. You know, because he's one of those type of guys that it don't take much for him to get motivated. You could say something up. You could say just something about his dog, and he'd be like, "Oh, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah." Well, I'm gonna show you, right? You know, and that's the way he is. <laughs> you know, we talked about how ridiculous Brady's uh, touchdown to interception ratio is. Well, uh, Aaron Rodgers is even more ridiculous. 412 career touchdowns, only 89 interceptions. That's I mean, that's more better than four to one on that ratio. I mean, that's that's just phenomenal. You, know, you want a quarterback in any kind of capacity. You want a quarterback to take care of the ball, and he is the personification of taking care of the ball. I don't. I can't recall Aaron Rodgers throwing a bad pass, like a pass that that's like you go back to like uh, I don't know if he would have thrown that. You know, and I think and I think that that Green Bay deserves somebody like that coming after Brett Favre, who he didn't have, who he never passed, met a pass he didn't like. You know. <laughs> 
I mean, he's throwing across his body and down this way and just throwing behind guys and stuff. Aaron Rodgers is, is, is so precise. You, you so may have 31 other franchises arguing with that, that they think uh, Green Bay deserves another quarterback like uh, Aaron Rodgers after <laughs> Brett Favre, though. That's, a, that's, <laughs> that's quite the blessing for Green Bay fans to have two outstanding, you know, and Aaron Rodgers is definitely going to be a first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, as mm-hmm. well as Brady. Uh, definitely. Back to back to back, you know, back to back to back, you know, back to back, you know, having a quarterback, you know, two Hall of Fame quarterbacks back to back. I mean, you don't have you don't have several franchises who have two court two Hall of Fame quarterbacks. In fact, you get them back to back. Plus, with the illustrious history of that franchise, anyway, I mean, the rich get richer. That's what in, in that way. Right. Now, some some of his uh, awards in the NFL. He's a nine time Pro Bowler, three time All Pro. One Super Bowl championship, unfortunately, against the Steelers, and also a three-time MVP, uh, league MVP. Uh, great quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, definitely on our, our list. Uh, okay, so now we have 10 spots filled up uh, between our Hall of Famers and putting Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady on there. Uh, we got to come up with two more names to, to put on this list. And uh, you mentioned some good ones uh, beforehand. Uh there's, there's also a couple other quarterbacks I have in mind, unless you have somebody you want to talk about that were great number 12s. Well, I'm going to talk about two of them. One, okay. I remember watching in high school, and he, I thought that if he would have stayed healthy, he would have changed the quarterbacking position forever, and that's Randall Cunningham. No. Had he stayed healthy with the Eagles, the Eagles would have won multiple Super Bowls, I felt. But the, the problem with that was that that, so that team was so defensively heavy, for one thing, he didn't have a lot of weapons, and plus he got hurt. So Randall Cunningham could have changed the game for quarterbacks in the 90s, you know, because when I think of Randall Cunningham, I think of that that, that play on Monday Night Football against the Giants. I think it was either Leonard Marshall hit him or Chip Banks or somebody hit him, where he basically, he's went in the air, he caught himself, picked himself up, and threw a touchdown pass. I saw yeah. that, and I said to myself, this dude is unreal, you know, and I saw that. I said, you've never seen anything like that before ever. And I think I was like a junior or senior in high school when that happened. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, he was a four-time Pro Bowler, one-time All-Pro, won the 1988 Burt Bell Award, 1990 Burt Bell Award, uh, just under 30,000 yards passing, 207 touchdowns. I mean, yeah, what a, what an athlete, uh, Randall. Cunningham was a great, great quarterback. And like you said, he doesn't get hurt uh, as often as he did. He really could have done some damage in the league. So de- definitely a candidate uh, for one of our two. Uh, who, who's your other quarterback? You said you had two of them. The other one, yeah, I think I think history gives him something of a bum rap because he became really – he was always good through his career, but he got the notoriety toward the end of his career, and that's John Brody for the 49ers. <laughs> Uh, people don't necessarily remember John Brody, but he really didn't become a really superstar quarterback until the late 60s, early 70s, especially when they got Gene Washington at receiver. Because that really opened up the offense because he was always a thrower, you know, and that team that team has always was always defense back then. But when John Brody got Gene Washington, you know, he finally found somebody to throw the ball to. You know, then you had um, Ted Qualick, the tight end, which is one of the most underrated tight ends in NFL history with Ted Qualick. Those two guys 
gave John Brody finally some targets, and it showed in 1970 when they finally reached the NFC Championship game. Eventually, they lost uh, to Dallas in the last game at Keysar Stadium. Um, he went, they, went to, they went to the NFC Championship the very next year against Dallas again. But John Brody was one of those quarterbacks that the numbers don't bear it out, but if you really think about his career, he was one of the really great, solid quarterbacks. He was the greatest quarterback in 49ers history before 1979. He was by far. Now, even even, even better than Y.E. I think. It was John Brody. Ah, interesting. Now, the one thing that I – I have that I would say I would question a little bit about putting uh, Brody on our list is his overall record as a quarterback. And he played on some, some bad teams in San Francisco. He played on some very good ones, but overall his record was 74, 76 and eight. Uh, That's probably an era where you don't want to go to that touchdown interception ratio because there's quarterbacks putting the ball up. So it's not a good stat for, for that era, but that, that Mm -hmm. win loss record, I think is an important one. To do it, and, you know, as opposed, as opposed to you know, Cunningham had a little bit better record, but Cunningham had a little bit better win loss record, even though his career was shorter. Um, I think I would I would probably take Cunningham over Brody a little bit, but I'm not I'm not totally sold on either one of them yet because I've got a couple mm-hmm. quarterbacks that maybe we should be in this discussion. Um, one of them is. Uh, Joe Ferguson that played for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, you know, Ferguson was uh, a righty that came out of um, Arkansas and played, yeah. played with multiple teams, most famously with the Buffalo Bills, uh, played with Detroit for a little bit. Um, and my computer's freezing up here to give you all the stats on him. But, but Ferguson, and I wish I could have his win-loss record, unless you have it up right now that you can see. <laughs> Um, Joe Ferguson, for what I remember, I, 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 a lot of this I'm just going right off memory. Joe Ferguson was one of those quarterbacks that was just another great system quarterback. Um, he started his career handing the ball off to O.J. Simpson, okay, and he was which which wasn't bad. Um, and but he was he led the Bills to a number of playoff wins. He's one of the first quarterbacks. Another one of those quarterbacks that I was easily influenced by because of how, how young I was watching him in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, I remember one playoff game against the Chargers where the, he had the Chargers dead to rights, and the Chargers put it out the last second. But he had some really, really good teams in, the, in Buffalo in the early 80s, you know, throwing to Frank Lewis and handing the ball to um, – um, Joe Cribs and you know they had some really good teams in Buffalo with him as as, as the floor as the lead as uh, the field general. But you know Joe Ferguson is a great, great, great name, great quarterback. I think that it, it, it is another underrated quarterback in history. He gives who has a bum rap historically. And, and you know I, I do have his record up now. He was was also had a losing record. He was seventy nine and ninety two as a starter, uh, one hundred ninety six uh, touchdowns, two hundred nine interceptions. But again, that's that era, you know, especially with OJ Simpson in the backfield for a lot of his career. Probably not a good stat to to look at. Uh, the other quarterback that I had that I wanted to talk about is uh, what do you think about uh, Rich Gannon? Uh, you know, famously of the Kansas City Chiefs, the Oakland Raiders uh, played in the Super Bowl with the Raiders. 
Another underrated quarterback. Another underrated quarterback. And another thing about him that was so underrated that early in his career when he was with Minnesota, he was a scrambling quarterback, another scrambling quarterback. And people don't remember his mobility so much because he really didn't have to do that when he was in Oakland with that great offensive line throwing the ball to Jim Brown and Jerry Rice. But he was, I think I believe he was a league MVP one year, the year they went to the Super Bowl, correct? I, yes, I he was. I remember that. And um, and he was an outstanding quarterback. He should have been in two Super Bowls, but he, he got chipped out of one. We're not going to go. We're not going to talk. We're not going to talk about the tough <laughs> rule. But anyway, um, you know the tough rule won't, won't, won't be brought up. But anyway, um, <laughs> but you know Rich Gannon was was a very good quarterback for a long, long time in the league. And uh, on, on my top ten list, I had him on here. You know, the top ten list that I had made, I, you know, put him on. He was, he was, uh, he was on my list. So that, um, that's that's sort of my sleeper. I wanted to save him because I mean, you look at his quarterback record: seventy-six and fifty-six. You know, twenty games mm-hmm. over five hundred, one hundred and eighty touchdowns, one hundred and four interceptions, threw for twenty-eight thousand yards, uh, and you know. Part of his career, he was playing behind some other, you know, very good quarterbacks that were on the same roster as him, and uh, in multiple teams, multiple offensive coordinators, uh, but still had a, a brilliant career. And I, I mean, I would, I, sort of pounding the table. I think uh, Rich Gannon deserves some consideration to be put on our list uh, with some of these yeah, other names. Another one that's somewhat questionable because he didn't have a very long career. At least we don't think so right now, but that's Andrew Luck. Uh, interesting uh, quarterback that wore number 12. Um, I have, uh, and one of the um, subheadings I have on, on mine is like, I have two quarterbacks who could be listed as what could have been. Okay. One is Andrew Luck. He could have been the true success of the Peyton Manning in Indianapolis. You know, he could have led the, the Colts to multiple Super Bowls. I saw that coming. Okay. Another quarterback that people forget about because his career did not only lasted a few years, and that's Greg Cook of the Bengals. Ah, and interesting. He was another number 12. He, if he would have stayed healthy and his shoulder wouldn't have given out, he would have been credited in the NFL lore as the man who started the West Coast offense because he was under the tutelage of Bill Walsh. Walsh was the quarterback's coach for Cincinnati during his rookie year. He came out of the University of Cincinnati. But Greg Cook could have been credited for the man who started the West Coast offense. Because he, because Walsh learned it from um, Al Davis, and Al Davis, of course, learned it from Sid Gilman. And Walsh just kind of ran a different derivative of it and just kind of perfected it. Um, but Greg Cook was the first true student of the West Coast offense, and he was phenomenal his first I think since his first year it was a typical rookie year, but you saw flashes of brilliance with that with that Bengals team, and that was the, that was the Bengals' first year, and they came within I think came very close to making the playoffs that first year in the AFL. Uh, yeah, his uh, well, really, he 
only had the starting experience of he played two seasons in the league with the Bengals, only one year of uh, win loss record. He was four, six, and one with the Bengals in that uh, 69 season. But people talk about Greg Cook as far as like what could have been with him uh, because he showed flashes of being a very, very decent, very good quarterback. Um, you talk to Bill Walsh and Bob Trumpy who played with him. Um, you know, you would, people bring up Greg Cook's name a lot. Andrew Luck, had his career been longer, we would be talking about possibly the, the new, you know, Brady Luck Super Bowl could have been this year. The new, the new rivalry, possibly the AFC between Mahomes and Luck, you know, or you know, Lamar Jackson and Luck. You know, he could have been within that 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 that, that new era of great quarterbacks in the NFL. Okay, uh, now, I mean, that's uh, pretty much who I have uh, for I think under consideration. I mean, you have some some guys that were number twelve, but not for very long. Didn't have the careers, you know, like Daryl Lamonicas and. Uh, right. We've had some, you know, wide receivers and some kickers that have had it. You know, some some very good players, um, but the, didn't wear the number for a very long time. You know, Steve Smith wore the number twelve for uh, a yeah. few years. Um, uh, Percy Harvin and Michael Jenkins, uh, but yeah. Muhammad Sanu. But uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if they can stand up to the statistics of these, these great quarterbacks that we talk, especially when we're down to our last two spots. And I think we, we might be at that spot where we, we've sort of got to come to Jesus here on our last two uh, players that we want to put right. on there. And um, who, are, who are you thinking those two should be? I think Randall Cunningham could be on that list at the, the, the number 12 because of what, you know, because of his, his, his contribution to the Eagles and how he's still remembered with the Eagles. You know, mm-hmm. and I think he sort of paved the way for some of our modern day quarterbacks. You know, yeah, yeah. between him and Fran Tarkington, you know, probably helped out a lot. The you know the um, Russell uh, Russell um, Wilsons and yeah. uh, and Patrick Lamar Mahomes, Jackson, Lamar Jacksons. Yeah. yeah, I think those definitely. He was a trailblazer for that style of quarterback play. And I, I, I don't have a problem at all of having Randall uh, Cunningham on that list. So now we're down to one. And who are we have, saving that last spot for? You know, I, I would actually defer to you because you brought up Joe Ferguson. I, I know that John Brody, Joe Ferguson, kind of like what and what, you know. Um, I think they're kind of like, mm, you know. Um, you, you got, you know, but at the same time, you can't, you can't argue with Rich Gannon. You can't argue with Rich Gannon. I, I think I'm leaning towards Gannon a little bit because of his win loss record, playing for multiple teams, having that super, that uh, NFL MVP, uh, Super Bowl victory. Um, mm-hmm. The stats are there, and I I think uh, deservedly so. I think I would give that nod to Rich Gannon if you're in agreement with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because I mean, plus, I mean, he's a, he's a um, he went to led the team to the Super Bowl and was league MVP. So you can't you can't. You know, you can't argue with that. You know, I mean, Ferguson and Brody were two very good quarterbacks who who had, you know, had some lean years and had, of course, had more interceptions than touchdowns. But you have to, you know, but I think Rich Gannon could be the one that you would really have to go with. 
Yeah, I, I think that hardware holds a lot of weight uh, when you're talking about, you know, yeah. I, I know the Pro Football Hall of Fame considers that a lot. There's a lot of great quarterbacks that don't get in the Hall of Fame when people think they should because they didn't have that Super Bowl championship or, you know, didn't have that league MVP season. But uh, Rich Gannon has both of those, and I think uh, deservedly so gets on that, that list. Uh, so in retrospect, let's review here. Uh, so we're going to go with uh, Rich Gannon, Randall Cunningham, uh, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, and then our eight Hall of Famers, uh, which we had as uh, Bradshaw, Greasy, um, Link Lyman, uh, Arnie Erber, Ken Stabler, Joe Namath, and I'm missing one, um, uh, Jim Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are our, our dirty dozen the greatest players wearing the number 12 in the uh, NFL and that's uh, coming from Darren Hayes and Dana Guster. And uh, Dana, I uh, do you have any? What do you have coming up on your your podcast that uh, we can look forward to in the near future? Well, the one that dropped tonight was uh, uh, I did a show like uh, I explained it in the beginning. Like I had a conversation with a buddy of mine, and we just started talking about things in sports that you don't see anymore. Um, and not only just in football, but in sports in general. And we t- and basically we talked about and basically in my show this upcoming week, I'm talking about for example, whatever happened to wide world of sports. Ah, okay. Um whatever happened to uh wide world of sports, whatever happened to the um the college all-star game. You know, mm. whatever happened to, you know, stuff like, you know, things of that nature, things you don't see anymore. In basketball, what happened to illegal defense? That's something that has gone by the boards that you don't see anymore. Stick them in the NFL. I know it's out of but I talk about stick them. I talk, I talk about um, um, another thing in football I talked about was once upon a time they had something called the Burt Bell Playoff Bowl. Oh, yeah. Which was the two-third bit. The two third place teams playing against each other, you know, for charity. I think it was. Well, you it was know, a it was a way to make a, teams playing. It was a way for the players to make <laughs> a little bit extra uh, jing in their pockets because there wasn't a lot of playoff games back then, and uh, you know those teams that uh, were third and fourth place didn't make a whole lot of money. So that was an extra. It was a charity game, but the players also still got paid. And we're going to be talking about that quite a bit. Uh, we have uh, Burt Bell, who the, was a former commissioner of the NFL. His son, Upton Bell, I have an interview uh, that we've talked with him. And we're going to be airing that on February 25th, which is Burt Bell's birthday on the podcast. And uh, All right, cool. uh, Upton Bell has a terrific uh, history himself. I mean, he was the uh, player personnel director of the uh, 1960s Colts, you know, with Unitas and uh, all those under mm-hmm. Don Shula, Weeb Bank, all those uh, great teams. And he also lays claim to fame, uh, up to himself, of helping to rename the uh, New England Patriots. They were the Boston Patriots, and then for a spell they were uh, right. called something else, and uh, Upton helped name them. I won't, I won't ruin that for our listeners, but uh, great, some great stories uh, <laughs> coming up on, uh, on February 25th on the podcast. But I'm sorry. Please continue with your that's podcast. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's mainly what I'm talking about. And plus, we have the top five this week, and you know, like top five stories of, of sports history that happened this past week in history includes, of course, there's something that happened last week. Last, you know, there's something happening this week 
uh, this past week in sports history that you remember where you were either watching it or hearing about it. You uh, have to listen to find out what I'm talking about. Oh, uh, very interesting. Very interesting. Well, you remember when you hear about this, you're like, I remember where I was when I first heard about that. <laughs> and you were shocked when you heard it. Well, that that's very interesting. So we'll definitely have to to listen to that. Um, this will this will be actually we're we're filming in um, or I'm sorry we're taping in mid February here. This is probably going to be right around the uh, the early twenties of February, so probably about a week and a half after the recording this. So Dana will probably have a couple of podcasts out since then. So make sure you go back and check out his episode three of uh, his podcast is what he's talking about. That's uh, dropping just, just before we started recording this. Um, Dana, you have, uh, before we let you go, we great, greatly appreciate you spending the time with us and talking about these number 12. I, great discussion. To it, man. I really was looking forward to it. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to have to have you on again for some more numbers, but before we let you go, uh, why don't you give everybody, if you want to your social media call out numbers uh, where they can see some of your, your great stuff you post on social media. Well, um, my, my Twitter feed is historically SP and the number two, uh, historically SP and the number two. That's historically speaking sports. Um, it's the name of the, the name of the site is the name of my podcast. And, uh, you can check me out. I post stuff every day on the, on the historically speaking or historically SP2 Twitter handle. Um, I do that every single day. Um, it varies on different times or whatever, but I have something planned every day that I put on there and uh, it's become a labor of love for mine, uh, for me. And, um, I really enjoy doing it every day. And, um, it, I learn something new every day when I do it. And, um, it's something that I've, I've enjoyed doing. I have a, a big following that I didn't expect I was going to have when I first started. And then I was, you know, a lot of my friends had talked me into doing it. And, um, I finally got to their advice and started doing it. And it's not turned into this. And I'm loving every second of it. Well, they're, they're very well done. I, I follow you on Twitter and it's uh, excellently done. Well, uh, well timed on all your, uh, your Twitter feeds that you're, you're putting out there and all your tweets and uh, the uh, graphics that you put with it are just outstanding. And they really capture the, the essence of what you're saying in your tweets. So they're very well done there. And uh, when everybody can find your podcast on the sports history network and uh, what, what uh, days and how frequent are you uh, releasing those? Well, I release those. I try to have them out every Sunday, but so far I haven't been able to, you know, just, you know, to, to really get the timing right and everything, but I'm trying to get it down where it come out like every Monday morning to talk about the, the week before, but, um, but mainly been coming out on Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday or Wednesdays or whatever, but, um, pretty soon I'm trying to get it, trying to get the routine down so I can get it every, uh, come out every Sunday night, Monday morning or so. So look for those right in the beginning of each week. Okay. Listeners here, you got it. So, I mean, so you don't miss a, a second of the historically speaking uh, podcast. Make sure you subscribe to it, and you'll know as soon as uh, Dana releases it because he's really got some great stuff there. It's really well put together. Uh, Dana Augustor, I really appreciate you coming on. We're going to have you on again here soon uh, to talk about some some more great, exciting uh, sports history. Uh, but we appreciate your time, sir, and uh, it was really a lot of fun. Thanks. Oh man, I had a blast, man! I can't wait to come back as a returning champion. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dana.
What a great guest and what a great visit we have with Dana Auguster of the Historically Speaking. Make sure you check out his podcast and check out all the other podcasts at the SportsHistoryNetwork.com, including this podcast you're listening to, because there are some great ones there. And we have plenty more of the hosts of some of those podcasts coming up in our Football by Numbers series in the coming weeks. So until tomorrow, everybody, have a great Gridiron Day. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history. But as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment. You know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you gotta do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sports. HistoryNetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.